The following Taisho by Shinge Roshi, Roko Sheri Shayat, was recorded at the Zen Center of Syracuse Hoenji in Syracuse, New York. These recordings are offered for free. We welcome your financial support. To contribute and for further information, please visit www.zencenterofsyracuse.org. Thank you. On Wednesday, June 15th, we got word that one of the pioneer American Zen teachers passed away after a long illness. This morning we chanted for her for morning service. Charlotte Jokobeck, who was in her earlier years a student of Mayazumi Roshi, and taught at her own center in San Diego for many years and has quite a few disciples who have places of their own. And I'm sure most of you know her book, which has become really a classic of Zen books written by American practitioners of the first generation called Everyday Zen. How many of you have read Everyday Zen? Shocking. You have a treat, those of you who have not. And then her second book is called Nothing Special, Living Zen. And I was looking through it again because I want to talk with you today about the Buddhist Teachers Council that I was at last week. I wanted to find a section that would kind of segue into that. And very quickly I found the chapter called The Cocoon of Pain. Yesterday, a butterfly flew... Let me try to get this. Yesterday, a butterfly flew through, you say it, through, flew, flew, through, flew through my open door and fluttered about in my room. Someone caught it and released it outside. It made me think about the life of a butterfly. A butterfly begins as a worm, which moves slowly and can't see very far. Eventually, The worm builds itself a cocoon, and in that dark, quiet space, it stays for a long time. Finally, after what must seem like an eternity of darkness, it emerges as a butterfly. The life history of a butterfly is similar to our practice. We have some misconceptions about both, however. We may imagine, for example, that because butterflies are pretty, their life in the cocoon before they emerge is also pretty. We don't realize all that the worm must go through in order to become a butterfly. Similarly, when we begin to practice, we don't realize the long and difficult transformation required of us. 
We have to see through our pursuit of outward things, the false gods of pleasure and security. We have to stop gobbling this and pursuing that in our short-sighted way and simply relax into the cocoon, into the darkness of the pain that is our life. Such practice requires years of our lives. Unlike the butterfly, we don't emerge once and for all. As we spin within the cocoon of pain, we may have momentary glimpses of life as a butterfly fluttering in the sun. At such times, we sense the absolute wonder of what our life is, something we never know as a busy little worm preoccupied with itself. We begin to know the world of the butterfly only by contacting our own pain, which means no longer worshiping the god of comfort and pleasantness. We have to give up our slavish obedience to whatever system of pain avoidance we have devised and realize that we can't escape discomfort simply by running faster and trying harder. The faster we run from our pain, the more our pain overtakes us. When, we, when what we depended on to give our life meaning doesn't work anymore, what are we going to do? Sitting is not about finding a happy, blissful state. The states may occur in sitting when we've really experienced our pain over and over so that finally there's just letting go. That surrender and opening into something fresh and new is the consequence of experiencing pain, not a consequence of finding a place where we can shut the pain out. We have two copies of this book in the library, so it's quite wonderful chapter. Those of you who don't have it may want to check it out. We all know very well, we've heard so many times talks by me and writings by others about Buddha's primary teaching after his awakening on the Four Noble Truths. And we all know, hearing this from Joko Beck and reflecting on our own lives, that it is true, there is suffering. Each one of us has experienced it in many different ways and continues to find ourselves stuck in a cocoon of our own making over and over again. There's no doubt about that first noble truth. All we have to do is open our eyes, look within, and look without. But the Buddha taught, we have to look at the origin of suffering. We have to look at the root of it in ourselves. 
How are we conditioned to perpetuate suffering? We do it so well. In fact, it's the thing we do best. Beyond karmic situations, beyond things that we have very little control over, what do we do? What is our ignorance, our fundamental ignorance that enslaves us? To really look at this is what our practice is all about. To look at the conditioning and how we've come to accept that conditioning as our reality. The Buddhist teacher's council that I attended last week was really one of the best gatherings I've ever been at. I had been 10 years ago at the last one out in Spirit Rock, California. That was kind of a circus. His Holiness the Dalai Lama was there, and it was just um, way, way bigger than anyone could possibly I think, really benefit from. This time was a very interesting first half. Mirabai Bush and Jack Cornfield and a couple of other people who helped put it together decided to have the first half consist of what they call the pioneers and Joko Beck would have been there had she not been so sick. The pioneers of uh, what we might also call the first-generation teachers who came after their Asian teachers were the true pioneers. We immediately told them, no, we can't call ourselves pioneers. Just call ourselves the old people. (laughs) Most of us were between um, 60 and 80 They had us meet, about 20 of us. Simultaneously, they had what they called the next gen, next generation of Buddhist teachers, new Buddhist teachers. Most of them were from California, most of them through Spirit Rock, um, Vipassana, and a few from uh, Thich Nhat Hanh's ordained Sangha, and some from... Uh, Vipassana groups, Tibetan groups, almost all from the West Coast. And I think the two groups viewed each other with a certain amount of mutual suspicion and quite a few assumptions starting out. For one thing, many of us in the morning period of meditation wore robes in the old people's group. And most of the new teachers had tattoos from head to foot. So instead of robes, they weren't going to cover them up. Most of us were involved with institutions. We had either started our own temples or 
were part of larger temples. Most of them were doing what we might call street Zen. They were out there in the community. Some of them had been in jail. Some were former addicts. And they were working with people right out in the community. So among them, I'll tell you some of the people who were in both groups, because it was really an illustrious gathering. The names from the old folks you probably would recognize, and um, not so many from the younger generation, but, but certainly one you'll know. Gaelic Rinpoche was there. Tenzin Palmo, remember? Cave in the Snow? And quite a few Tibetan nuns. John Kabat-Zinn, he and I had some wonderful talks. Jack Cornfield, Noah Levine from the Dharma Punks. He was the author of that book, but some of you met him when he was here. And he brought a number of the Dharma punks, men and women, teachers, wonderful people. Judith Simmer Brown from the early days in Boulder at Naropa. Um, Anne Klein also from Tibetan scholarly work. Some of you have read her books. Mirabai, I mentioned. Bhikkhu Bodhi who is probably the oldest of us, who is the preeminent translator of Pali texts. He was really amazing. Enkyo, Pat O'Hara, James Ford, Ken McLeod, who does, he is an old, um, an old-timer, but he's well-known now for his work in conflict resolution. Shriyadas, Stephen and Martine Batchelor. Martine spent about a decade as a nun in Korea and wrote a couple of books on that. And uh, Steve is also an author. David Frazier, who wrote The Feeling Buddha. Um, and I was so glad and Quite a few of us felt this way to see Richard Baker. He has his own center at Crestone, Colorado, and in Europe. I also got to dance with him the last night at a party. But anyway, as I was saying, there was a kind of feeling of... um, Oh, who are these people anyway? The younger folks looked at us and thought, establishment. (laughs) And we looked at them and thought, you're a teacher? (laughs) What kind of training did you have? You really think getting a tattoo is sufficient training? So there were these kind of unspoken feelings. But we all gathered in in the meditation hall, which is, if you can imagine, this place times six 
besides. Uh, this is at Garrison Institute, which is on the Hudson, looking out across the Hudson. You can see West Point, which had its own interesting metaphor for us, looking across the river. But very beautiful, rolling grounds and flowers everywhere, and wonderful trails. So we all met in the meditation hall, and then we would go into separate rooms as one group or another group, and then get together again and speak, and speak in large groups, small groups, on various topics. And at the end of our time together with the, the next generation, we had begun to really warm up to each other, hearing what our concerns were, and sharing so much. And at the end of those three days, they asked us to gather uh, outside the meditation hall and to enter as a group. And when we opened the doors, they had formed a kind of um, gauntlet, actually, two long rows. And we're like, "Mm, okay, we'll walk through. And so we walked through singly or in pairs and walked all the way down to the altar and then did prostrations and then turned around. And when we turned around, they did prostrations to us. And it was such a moving moment because all those things had been broken down. You know, we walked through the gauntlet feeling their love and their gratitude, which they then expressed in their bows. And... We felt that way at that point about them. They had been teaching us so much. Then the next Wednesday, I guess, by the end of the day, the rest of the generations were to come and join in and have this part two conference, the whole whole conference of Buddhist teachers' council conference. So how many would we be? 230. So we went from this very intimate interrelationship of generations. And I think there was a kind of, again, a feeling of, oh my God, what's going to be happening now? Um, to thought, First we thought, well, how shall we welcome them and what shall we do? And so it was decided, we'll just stop this conference and start a new conference so that they don't feel as though they're walking into something that's already been going on that they've not been a part of. So we had yet another kind of, you know, welcome. And um, everyone gathered and did a kind of exercise where, you know, 230 people are in a circle in a room and you turn around and you speak to two people for one minute and then you move to, they move three steps over and you speak to the next two people and they had, it was amazing how, how well everything was organized. Mirabai is really incredible. And she had a, a woman who was a facilitator who was really astonishingly good, working with so many people. It was called Emergent. Have you ever been to a gathering with Emergent? Um, what? What's it called? Emergent structure or dialogue? Or? There's lots of different terms that Yeah, so that you're not locked in to any particular system. And 
it's organic. And so what comes through your discussion, through your realizations and your mutually inspiring back and forth um, work is this, um, this feeling of, of flow. And so emergent engagement is really what it's all about. So it emerges as it goes along. It's not structured in a, in a, a very systematic way. But it really relies on people who understand systems very thoroughly. And they did. They were really good. So after that uh, evening together with everyone and the next morning together and afternoon with different small groups, big topics, get together in the whole group, break up, small groups. Wonderful themes and... um, just, you know, things that we really thought were important. There was a panel on social activism, Buddhist, engaged Buddhism of all kinds, various people who were quite important in doing this work beyond their own small communities. The next day, so the evening before the next day, the next-gen folks said to all of us, by now we're this huge group of many generations. They said, um, be in the meditation hall tomorrow morning by 8.59. So 9 o'clock was our usual start. And of course, we would linger over breakfast, so they were the worst offenders. But they were telling us, okay, be there by 8.59. So okay, what's going to happen? We'll go. So we all got there, and pretty much by 9 o'clock, everyone was in the room. And they had us all stand to one side of this vast room. So there's the altar, and someone took a roll of blue tape and made a line down the entire length of the room. So here are 230 people, and here's this line, and here's this empty half of the room. How many of you have done this exercise called crossing the line or are familiar with it? Hmm? No? Nobody? It was led by one of the Dharma punks, a wonderful guy named Vinny, who had come with Noah Levine. And um, he emanated compassion, sensitivity, tact, kindness, all these things, beautifully tattooed. Some of the, some of the people with their tattoos, I just couldn't take my eyes off. They were amazing. This one woman I got in the hot tub with, all over, just every inch, just incredible. Anyway, so Vinny was leading us in crossing the line exercise. So he started off with um, explaining what we would be doing. He said he was going to tell us some categories. Now, these categories are kind of the way we're conditioned. So getting back to the cocoon that we make, okay? The way we're conditioned to see the world. So he said, when you feel motivated to, when you feel this is true for you, that the words I use may be, maybe not exactly, but if you find something in what I say that is true for you, cross the line and then come back. So he started with kind of general categories, like everyone who's of African background or African identifies as African-American, African ancestry, uh, cross the line. 
So quite a few people, about, I would say, at least uh, 20, including one white girl, I tell you, I never would have suspected. My age, I've known her for years. And uh, she, she was among them. And then he spoke a few words about the kinds of, you know, such challenges that people of color face and uh, within the Buddhist world as well as growing up. And then come back, and then all those uh, Latino, Latina, same kind of thing, quite a few people, of course, from California and Southwest. Then all those of Asian background, Gaelic Rinpoche, many others. We had quite a few people who were from various countries, Asia, India, uh, Cambodia. And then they went back and then other kind of large categories like those of you who had to learn how to speak English after coming to America. Here are all these teachers for whom English was not their native language and the struggles that they had. And, you know, he said, you know, it's really wonderful, it's really impressive what you had to go through. And they crossed back. And then um, other large categories like gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgendered, questioning, and intersexual, which I hadn't heard before. Quite a few people. And uh, he spoke to the prejudice that people feel and being marginalized and having to work so hard with that issue. And then he started um, asking for some categories that were even more emotional for us. One was, he asked, uh, this he said, this is for the women. Um, Those of you who have felt objectified or put down or dismissed or disregarded or uh, assaulted across the line. Now, the conference had about equal numbers of men and women. All but two women crossed the line. And he said, look at the men across from you. Look into each other's eyes. And then we cross back. And then he said, this is for the men only. All of you, because of your conditioning, who have treated women with disrespect or have had moments of violence or put them down or, or aggressive toward them, cross the line. Men were crying at this point. Across the line, we looked at each other and went back. And he asked, those of you who have seen someone die in front of you by violence, 
gunshot or stabbed, I was amazed at how many people crossed the line, especially the young ones, but some of the old ones too. And um, he asked, uh, those of you who have served in combat cross the line. Two guys, both built like linebackers, one black, one white, fell into each other's arms, sobbing, and then crossed back. He asked, those of you who have felt racism or sexism or homophobia within your sanghas cross the line. Quite a few. These are teachers. Those of you who experienced abuse within your sanghas, a lot of people crossed. He asked, those of you who are ashamed of behavior you had toward your students cross the line. Very hard question. He asked, those of you who never knew your father I was amazed after all these years, I'm 60, I'll be 68 in the fall, I was just completely devastated by the way the question was asked somehow. And this other woman from uh, Thich Nhat Hanh's Sangha, one of the next generation, she and I were crossing the line together so many times. We happened to be standing <laughs> together. And finally, we were just holding each other. And um, then he asked, those of you who were in the foster care system or had to run away as children. And again, so emotional. There were quite a few other questions and... um, One of them that was, I think, perhaps the hardest for one of the nuns was um, those of you who have had to disrobe from your monastic garb because of abuse in the Sangha. And one woman who was a Theravadan nun just began sobbing uncontrollably. She was wearing her robes, but she had had to leave one of the Theravadan communities because the teacher had decided that women didn't dare, didn't deserve to wear monastic attire. And so basically all the people left had to revert to civilian clothing. And she left and was basically homeless. She came to this conference without any place to go. So there were really um, incredible things that happened and everybody was so open to their own and each other's pain by the end of it. And then we had a break and then we all came together again in a circle, uh, in this huge circle. 
and did some processing and you know microphones being handed around and people spoke about what they felt and and uh, then David Brazier the guy who had written The Feeling Buddha said I don't know, you Americans, with all your liberal exercises like this, it just felt very uncomfortable to me to be part of this. So then I got the microphone and I stood up and I said, this discomfort is so important. To feel this and to stick with it, to be with it. And I said, my vow is to stay raw and not try to paper it over. And there were a lot of heads nodding to that. And then the afternoon we went on with the conference, but everybody was completely different. It was really astonishing. And then we had another small group in which we could uh, do further. Some of us, nine of us, met to discuss it more deeply. And that was Friday. And that night we had a party And the next gen were the DJs and had selected all the music. And all the music was for us old people, you know, Rolling Stones, Bee Gees, all kinds of great stuff. And it was that kind of feeling where you just felt felt their tenderness and concern and appreciation. And I have to say, by the next morning when we were all together for breakfast for the last time, we were in love. It was just such a beautiful gathering. And then I went back to Daibosatsu where there was an introduction to Zen weekend going on and gave a talk Saturday night kind of along these lines. And um, then nighttime, went to bed. At 1.30 in the morning, I woke up. I couldn't go back to sleep. I was so aware of the pain, the walls of the building were throbbing with pain. So when we open to our own pain and each other's pain, You can't look away, can't ignore it. And then this Saturday, I was reading the Times, as I always do, and I came upon this little article. As you know, there's a huge wildfire in southeastern Arizona. Turns out that 39 people are living at the Diamond Mound Retreat Center near Bowie. Does anybody know where Bowie, Arizona is? Quite a remote area. They're six months into a three-year silent, solitary retreat. They range in age from mid-20s to late 60s, and they're participating in intense meditation. They live in huts, separate huts. 
separated from one another and they've vowed to do this to promote world peace one person at a time. So they are right there near Horseshoe 2 Fire, which has already burned nearly 200,000 acres in the Chiricahua Mountains since May 8th. And the Cochise County Sheriff's Department is keeping an eye on whether or not they're going to have to evacuate these folks who just started this three-year retreat. It's now uh, about, the fire is about four miles from where they're living. And they have 29 cabins ranging from mud huts to basic wood frame dwellings powered by solar panels or propane. And they get supplies delivered by volunteers once a week. Among those in the retreat are Christy McNally, who is the director and is one of the first women to be recognized as a lama in the Tibetan tradition, Lisette Garcia, a former college professor from New York, Dvora and Aritz Vieli from Israel, seeking an end to the conflict in the Middle East, and Bill McMichael, former American Airlines pilot. They all built their cabins and huts themselves and are in the midst of this amazing, life-changing experience. So as we keep track of what's going on in the Southwest with this terrible fire, let's keep them in our thoughts, in our chanting, and... Let's keep each other in our deep awareness and compassion. And when I say each other, I don't mean just those of you who are sitting here, but all beings, all beings, so that when we chant great vows, we really feel it. Hi.